Zipin recently proposed a new international standard to increase consumer understanding of online terms and conditions. And I think that's really got the potential to make a huge impact on consumer protection in this area because we're hoping it will spell out good practice to improve like the clarity of terms, highlighting those key points at the beginning, you know, so people know upfront the key things they're agreeing to and making sure that people really understand the terms. So whether there's additional charges or, you know, what their cancellation rights are before they confirm their purchase. So I think that's a really interesting forthcoming standard. And I think we'll need to be looking much more towards digital um, services in the future. You are listening to the Consumers and Standards series from the BSI Education Podcast in association with CPIN, the Consumer and Public Interest Network. Today's episode is on standards and services. The voice we heard at the top of the episode there was Julie Hunter, independent consultant in consumer research, policy, advocacy and protection, and CPIN chair and also a familiar voice to those of you who may have listened to more than one episode in this series. Julie was talking about the future of standards for services. We'll hear more from Julie later, and also Adam French from Which, Zoe Gijaro from Citizens Advice, and Ignazi Maloney of the UK Regulators Network. Between them, they talk about the changing trends in service provision, the potential for consumer harm, the role of regulation, and also some of the key standards for services. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and you are listening to the sixth episode of the BSA Education podcast, Consumers and Standards series, which is about consumers and services. And we're delighted to be bringing it to you in association with our friends at CPIN, the independent consumer and public interest network, which in 2021 is celebrating its 70th anniversary. The Consumer and Public Interest Network, or CPIN, empowers and protects consumers, making everyone's life safer, fairer and better through effective consumer representation in British standards. Established in 1951, CPIN's trained volunteers participate in the development of standards to highlight key consumer issues, making sure that real-life problems are addressed and the risk of consumer harm is minimised. CPIN believes that all consumers have a right to safe and accessible goods and services, clear information, fair treatment, effective systems of redress, and a healthy environment. CPIN representatives use the United Nations Guidelines for Consumer Protection as the foundation for their work. They sit on hundreds of standards development committees, speaking up for consumers. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash consumers. The consumer voice in standards is incredibly important. This is because standards are everywhere, making consumers' lives safer, fairer and easier. Whether you're using a mobile phone or shopping online, standards behind the scenes are setting good practice for organisations that make goods and provide services. Now, BSI publishes around 3,000 standards every year, and it'd be pretty much impossible for CPIN to get involved in every single one. So instead, resources are focused in areas where CPIN can have the greatest positive impact for consumers, based on five priorities. Sustainability, consumer vulnerability, consumer safety, digital and services. Now, the aim of the BSI Education podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards, So this series 
looks at some of the stories and issues for each of these five priorities. For this episode, the CPIM priority is services. We all use services every day, from healthcare and financial services, to utilities and entertainment, to travel and tourism. Services are vital to consumers and the economy, with UK consumers spending billions on them each year. They account for 80% of the UK's gross domestic product. For services, there are many things to consider. Information and advice provided to consumers, contracts, terms and conditions and billing, safety and the physical service environment, quality of customer service and competency of personnel, and feedback complaints, disputes and redress. Standards provide valuable guidance to organizations about what good looks like at each of these stages. They help service providers to improve quality, keep existing customers and win new ones. Consumer participation in the development of standards for services is vital to enhance consumer protection and increase positive outcomes. Here's me with a quick reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what we do here on the hashtag BSIDpod and you listen to us via Apple Podcasts, then please consider giving us a five-star rating. It really does make a difference to us being found via search and recommendations. Share us on social media using that hashtag BSIDpod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or previous episodes, or even ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. So this episode looks at the issue of standards and services with four guests. Zoe Gijaro, Policy Manager for Future Energy Services at Citizens Advice. Agnese Maloney, Vulnerability Lead Manager at the UK Regulators Network. Julie Hunter, Independent Consultant and CPIN Chair. And Adam French, Senior Consumer Rights Editor at the independent consumer organisation, Which. I started by asking Adam, over the past 20 years or so, what have been the main trends in the provision of services for consumers? The big change for consumers in, in the last couple of decades, there's no escaping it. It's the shift to online. Now, I remember being a student, uh, being at school in the 90s and being really excited that we got the first computers in that just let you scroll around some plain pages of text with a few hyperlinks, all very thrilling stuff. Now, you look at the experience online today and it's almost entirely unrecognizable. And the big change there has been, it has brought the high street, the supermarkets into our homes. You can book everything from a flight to a holiday, to your weekly shop, to essential gifts for people in a run up to Christmas. All of that can be done, not just from a computer, but from the little handheld mobile phone sat on a sofa whilst you're watching television at the same time. That is a dramatic change to consumerism. And if you look at the stats behind it, in 2019, around one in five, well, one pound in every five was spent online when it came to retail. In 2020, during the lockdowns, that was one pound in every four. That's a huge shift already we're seeing, especially when we consider things like the amount of money we spend in supermarkets on a weekly basis. And it's not only that, dramatic shift in behavior, but three quarters of us actually 
we'll either do our research online um, or actually look for inspiration online before we make a purchase. So in the last 20 years, the presence of the internet has absolutely revolutionized the way consumerism works in this country. And it's happened very quickly, but very subtly. Um, It's smart tech firms behind this that make it almost feel perfectly natural that we've changed our behaviors in such a dramatic manner in a relatively short space of time. Um, Obviously, this is a a huge deal and it it kind of it's difficult to understate as well the kind of impact that has on our behavior and how easily 10 o'clock at night you can be booking a holiday um sat on your sofa and it's a it's a dramatic change for a lot of us um and it certainly has opened up the door to a lot of uh, potential problems moving forward as well as regulators race to keep up with the rate of change when it comes to digital technology but it's not only connected us to the internet it's connected us internationally as well if you shop online now you can find yourself shopping from retailers based anywhere else on the planet the increased globalization of our behavior as consumers online as well does make a huge difference and that can throw up some real opportunities um, in terms of finding products you wouldn't find otherwise, even snapping up bargains you wouldn't do otherwise. But with that can come problems when it comes to resolving issues with retailers based on the other side of the planet or issues with, as we've seen since Brexit, customs and VAT and a kind of admin that can bog down consumer transactions across borders as well. It's a huge change, a huge, huge change for a lot of us that can go unnoticed unless you stop and think about it. So you've mentioned there, Adam, obviously huge change over the last uh, 20 years in terms of moving uh, products and services online and the way with the consumerism has changed and obviously accelerated under COVID. I just think in terms of protecting consumers from harm in terms of services, how do we do that? How, would you, how do we protect consumers from harm? Well, there is legislation in place now, uh, which has been brought in over the last decade or so, that is designed to try and prevent some of the worst harm from happening. The Consumer Rights Act was brought in in 2015, which for the first time really in UK law set out out protections for people when they're buying digital content, which beforehand was a bit more theoretical. The Consumer Contracts Regulations was brought into UK law as originally a piece of EU law, and that gives people really important calling off periods um, of around 14 days for most items you'd buy or service contracts you'd enter into if you're doing those at a distance. So online, over the phone, mail order catalogues, even as long as you're not on the retailer's premises, you get protections there as well. So those are really good and really positive developments to ensure that a lot of us are protected as much as possible. However, there are still some outstanding issues that you you can find. In particular, one that stands out is often the role of intermediaries. And there appears to be, to my mind, at least a bit of a gap around that. So when we talk about intermediaries, it's online marketplaces. um, So where they connect you as the consumer with the trader and they're a middleman or middle person um, in between that, taking a cut usually off both parties as well for the privilege. And often you can find as a customer, you're pushed from pillar to post, not quite sure who is responsible for resolving any problems. Now, let's take, for example, the last 18 months in travel in particular. Obviously, flights has been an absolute nightmare. The 
pandemic has wrought havoc with the travel industry. And a lot of people found the flights they had booked were no longer going ahead. And predominantly, I'd say I've heard from so many people who booked via an online-only travel agent. They booked just flights and have found themselves really struggling to get a refund because technically the airline's responsible for paying the refund, but the online travel agent's responsible for chasing them up to get it. And the consumer is stuck at the back end, unable to really move anything along effectively, often hundreds, if not thousands of pounds out of pocket. In fact, which research found that there's around a billion pounds worth in refunds being unlawfully withheld last year. That number has come down since as regulators have been able to force companies into taking action. But it goes to show there are still challenges out there online. And that's one area that really stands out and actually getting these platforms to take responsibility for resolving problems and the content that's available on them those are the big challenges we're facing in the future. There are ways to get your money back if you're buying directly from a retailer, but the way the internet is set up now, it does massively benefit those intermediaries, those middlemen, and to ensure that there are appropriate protections in place there, that means these big tech firms can ensure that we aren't taking advantage of as consumers. That's the big next challenge uh, for consumer protection looking ahead in the next few years. You've mentioned the Consumer Rights Act there of 2015. Also, also you mentioned their regulation. I'm interested about that sort of growth and regulation. We have off this, off this and off that, particularly for essential services around water and energy. How important is that in the, in the mix here in terms of protecting consumers, that sort of growth in regulation? Hugely important. And I know it's very popular at the moment to uh, say that there's, we're over-regulated, bonfire of red tape, deregulate. There's a big deregulatory drive certainly coming off the back of our departure from the European Union. But actually, regulation where it's in place to protect consumers is, is hugely, hugely important. If you just look back at the, the history of which, actually, one of its earliest campaign successes was the introduction of the Unfair Terms Act in 1977. And that was brought in to protect consumers from the very worst excesses of small print and being caught out by additional fees and, and things you didn't realize were going to happen because they were buried in legalese in small print in, in contracts. And that's you know, one example of how important these regulations, these protections are to make sure that we as consumers are not taken advantage of because ultimately businesses have all the time in the world to sit down and think about how they can most effectively separate us from our cash. And that's fine because that's what they're there for. They're there to turn a profit. Ultimately, you need regulations in place to ensure that is being done in a fair, open and transparent way because as customers, we do not have all the time in the world to do that research. We need to be able to make decisions in a relatively speedy manner with a degree of research, certainly, but not the same amount of time a business has to dedicate towards separating us from our cash. And that is why they are important. They will remain important. And moving forward, consumer protection regulation has to be at the heart of any successful, thriving economy. Now, you mentioned uh, a sort of important part there, sort of part of the mix. We've got regulation, we've got Consumer Rights Act, and also which and its campaigns and what it's done over the years. Um, obviously, we're interested in the standards angle here. So, from the perspective of which, what role do standards play in providing consumer protection for services? Well, it's all about quality then. Um, standards are, are massively important in ensuring that what we have access to as consumers is of a level that is safe, that is acceptable to consumers, that really matches against consumer expectations, against safety standards. It's just so fundamental, again, to us being able to 
spend our money confidently and consumer confidence again goes to the heart of a thriving economy and good quality standards mean that when you're spending money you know you'll be getting something of at least a minimum standard and that means you can spend that money with confidence and therefore the economic wheels keep turning we keep participating people are getting fleeced they just are so fundamental um, to a positive consumer experience. Now, of course, as consumers, there are some services that we need more than others. Essential services like water, telecoms, health, financial services and energy. I picked this up with Zoe Gijaro, Policy Manager for Future Energy Services at Citizens Advice. Through its network of independent charities, Citizens Advice offers confidential advice for free. It started its work way back in September 1939, and last year it helped 2.7 million people in the UK. It's also the statutory consumer watchdog for the energy and postal industries, meaning it advocates on behalf of consumers in these markets. I started by asking Zoe, in terms of information and choice, what are the consumer challenges for essential services like energy? I think one of the first challenges that has really occurred to me much more in recent years actually is around um, accessibility of advice and information. It used to be that, um, especially in energy, you could go into an energy efficiency advice centre, for example, and get that uh, advice and information face-to-face but over the years that's been whittled down to being an online service and I think you know there's very good reasons for that lots of us are connected online but equally there's lots of people that aren't so that can be a real challenge when focusing on on provision of energy advice digitally whether it's via our smartphones or or online and it can be to the detriment I think of um, of other media and I think I often say when I'm at meetings, yeah, you know, digital is great and digital first is great, but it shouldn't be digital only. So that's something that I I think about on a regular basis, how we can make it accessible and inclusive um, to all consumers. Another big challenge is confusion. Um, Net zero is particularly confusing. We've got lots of different technologies and lots of different ways of approaching it. Um, it's confusing when you work in the industry. So I can only imagine what it's like to for just your average consumer who's worrying about getting the kids to school or going and caring for an aunt or something like that it's it's almost overwhelming so people don't really know where to go to get useful and trustworthy information and and in the main people don't really know that this is coming either so that's that's a big issue for us um and i it would be remiss of me if i didn't talk about the issue of, of choosing your energy tariff um, around a big challenge at the moment because given the current energy crisis and there are significantly less to choose from and people don't really know what to choose either, um, I think they're three of the biggest challenges facing consumers at the moment in the energy market. I suppose you're right, isn't it? Because obviously everybody needs to consume energy. We, we, need, we need energy and people do want to make sustainable choices. So that's a, the, the issue there about information and choice is a really important one within, within energy in particular, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, it's so complicated, isn't it? And, um, you know, you just hear different bits banded about and people will often talk to their installer maybe um, and that installer 
might prefer a particular technology over another for very good reason. Um, And in those cases, are they getting, you know, the full picture of what would be right for their home and also their lifestyle? You know, because that does play uh, a big factor. How we use energy in our home plays a big factor into what might be the best choice for us. So there's lots to think about. So big consumer challenges then in terms of information and choice. How about the challenges in terms of service delivery? What are those? So again, it kind of leads on from this issue of confusion for me. It's around um, the suitability of services for all types of consumer, especially those who might be um, in vulnerable circumstances. You know, often services don't really understand that vulnerability is dynamic, that people can shift in and out of it. So for example, I shifted in and out of it when I was pregnant, um, you know, because at that point in time, I would have been classed as more vulnerable um, due to my personal circumstances and people can fall in and out due to ill health um, and that type of thing. So I think trying to think about how they deliver their services to, again, it's around inclusivity, around being adaptable uh, to people's needs. And we've certainly seen lots of change, haven't we, over the last 18 months and probably lots of consumers, again, going in and out of vulnerable circumstances, depending on what was happening with them. I think another big issue is around communication, um, how things are communicated, especially in these challenging times um, when people are struggling. Um, it can be it can be a challenge for those people providing those services, and, and also a challenge for consumers to understand. I think the the pandemic has led to a lot of probably worry and panic over paying bills and therefore some people are always scared then to communicate with with whoever they're purchasing their services from um and often have just released a really uh useful and important report around the the importance of communication especially around debt and the need to be compassionate in our language so i think i think there's knowledge out there and but it's about services being able to grab hold of that. And another big challenge in terms of service delivery, especially in, I would say, renewable technologies or energy efficiency technologies in the home to meet net zero, is this issue of quality. Um, we've seen a lot of scams come come about. And again, that links back to advice and information. If there's not the right advice and information out there, it leaves people vulnerable to being um, cold called on their doorstep and vulnerable to scams. So I think, you know, that's a big challenge for those organizations that are uh, bona fide and providing really good services and products to consumers when it comes to energy. Um, but it does certain government policies, certain grant schemes, this sort of stop start has really led to this sort of culture of scams and people being scammed, whether it's uh, via cold calls on the phone or on their doorstep. You mentioned uh, communication there is a really, really important word. So uh, I'm just interested from a sort of a third perspective to this. We talked about information and choice and then about service delivery. How about in terms of sort of complaints and redress, you know, when things go wrong, what are the particular consumer challenges there? So I think when things go wrong, we've certainly found that people um, really struggle sometimes with the route of getting redress, getting help and redress. And it's not always clear. And 
we recently um, released a report called Net Zero's Protection Puzzle. And that's exactly what it sounds like, that it is a puzzle and it is confusing and people aren't always protected in the ways that they would assume they should be. So I definitely think then that's when we see a lot of complaints come through, uh, especially when people have been scammed or they've had an installation by someone who's gone out of business, then there's not a clear path for them for address or not an easy path either. Um, And this is really important when it comes to things like heating technologies, because to be without your heat, you know, heating is something that we consider to be an essential for life service. So, you know, there's really big problems going to winter months if people don't have don't have their heating and it can lead to all kinds of health health issues. Another another really important point in terms of complaints and redress specifically in energy relates to people on heat networks. So heat networks um people get their heating as it sounds like through a network of pipes that just deliver heat rather than a fuel to their property where they then make heat. Um and people there are not are not protected at all. It's not a regulated sector, and they don't have anywhere to go to make a complaint. Even if they come to us at Citizens Advice, it's really difficult for us to um, to advocate on their behalf because there is no route for redress because they are not regulated. So I think they're you know two of the biggest challenges around complaints and redress is people a being able to get the help that they need. Uh, but be being able to understand the process in the first place because it can be very complicated and also take a very long time. I just wonder are the challenges any more sort of important here because we're not talking about can people sort of complaining or seeking redress over you know a small product or you know a, a mug or something or a, a widget you know or some other sort of product that they've bought. This is about mm. a really important thing you know energy for their home so they can they can heat and cook. So the, I suppose the challenges are more sort of stark, aren't they, for people? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, not being able to have heat in your home can cause all all manner of issues, not least with a person's physical and mental health. And um, it's, so it's really important that people are able to understand how they can get um, redress if something goes wrong. And I know often it, it might sound like I'm talking about a product in terms of, let's give an example, a heat pump. Um, and that is a product, but it's a product that provides heating to a home. So therefore, any complaint or any concern about it not working as it's supposed to has a direct impact on the health and well-being of the occupants of the property in which it's installed. So it's really important that there is a clear route to redress for that. Um, And for heat networks, for example, because that sector is not regulated, there's no standards around um, issues of reliability, for example. So if your gas was to go off, for example, um, because there was a problem in the streets, the the network would be round immediately to say, it's a problem with your gas. Do you need any alternative form of heating? Um, we're going to get it back on within X number of hours. That's not the case for heat networks. If um, your heating goes off, um, they're under no obligation to put it back on within a certain period of time or to provide you with an alternative source of heating. So when it comes to essential services like that and and water would be similar, it's really important that people are properly protected to ensure their health and well-being. 
Did you know? CPIN welcomes applications from consumer champions with a wide range of knowledge, skills and experiences. If you would like to become a CPIN representative and make a positive difference to consumers through standards, then email the team at consumer at bsigroup.com. Now, earlier, Adam French had mentioned the important issue of regulation for consumer protection. Regulation is distinct from direct government provision of services because it relies on using incentives to drive behaviour change in individuals and organisations outside of government's direct oversight. And it's used primarily to address market failures. In the UK, there are some 90 regulators. To look at the issue of regulation, I spoke with Agnese Maloney from the UK Regulators Network. Established in 2014, the UKRN currently brings together regulators from the UK's utility, financial, transport and housing sectors. I started by asking Agnese, why is it important that essential services are regulated? Uh, that's a very good question. So I guess um, let's start with the word essential. I guess I mean they're called essential services because everyone uses them really, and we call essential services things like uh, water, so utilities, I guess, and energy as well. And then we have things like uh, healthcare, for example, and banking and finance, etc. Um, so I guess they are of use to consumers all over the UK. Uh, and they make, I guess, people's lives easier. So we that's why we regulate them. So basically, we make sure that consumers can access them and that certain, uh, all of these services are affordable and yeah, can be used easily and affordably. So in terms of that regulation, you know, what, what is the role of the, of the regulators in these, in these key sectors, in these key services? Yeah, so I guess the main purpose of regulators is to protect the consumer and make sure that these services are accessible. And what we do, I guess, is we mainly monitor markets, for example. So um, we, do is, we do this in like energy, water, telecoms, etc. Uh, we make sure that um, ma- markets are functioning, that there's competition, that uh, consumers have choices for, for these services that they have different uh, providers to choose from, for example. Uh, and we kind of also monitor the behavior of firms so that we make sure um, that consumers can are not um, cheated or don't have you know uh, bad prices uh, presented to them. And I guess a general uh, role of re- regulators is to protect the consumer. Um, so that's why I guess in a way regulation is needed because we try and put consumer consumers' needs uh, first. So that's what we aim to do. And how specifically do regulators ensure that sort of quality of service and that good consumer protection that you mentioned? Uh, so I guess we do this in uh, in different ways. So first of all, we engage with different organizations. Um, we talk to firms all the time and um, just check that uh, they're providing good quality service for, for consumers. We also have um, more of a compliance and enforcement role. So for example, um, if we notice that things are going wrong or not the way they're supposed to, then we... We can step in and um, use our compliance and enforcement roles. And that means that basically we can find, for example, a firm if they do something wrong or if we think that um, consumers are not getting um, a good enough service, for example. Then you said that, uh, I mean, service providers can break the law, I suppose. I mean, what, what sort of powers do you have or do, do regulators have to intervene there? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess in general, it depends on the regulator. So all the regulators work in a similar way, but there's also a lot of difference between them. So it sort of depends on the remit that they have. Um, But we simply work through license conditions, which are basically uh, laws that are kind of um, 
present in the sector. Um, and we make sure that these laws are there so that the firms know um, what expectations we have in terms of the service that they have to give to consumers. And also uh, these license conditions are there because uh, if they if the firms don't um, respect this, uh, these laws, then we can act. So we have... Um, different powers depending on the regulator. But for example, Ofgem, which works in energy, um, works through the Electricity Act and Gas Act and different uh, consumers' laws that are actually in place for other regulators as well. And that gives us, um, I guess, the, the background for uh, for knowing what, uh, what firms should do. And when they, when they don't do that well enough, then we can intervene in the market. I mean, you mentioned energy there, and obviously energy has been a big news item over over the past few weeks here in the UK. I'm just interested in there about the different powers you say that the di- the different regulators have. Why is that? Why would you have different pa- different? Uh, well, sorry, why would regulators have different powers to intervene in their sector? What why would you have those differences? Yeah, um, that's also a good question. I think the difference just comes from working in different sectors. So I guess the regulators do the same job, but there are um, there is crossover in between, I guess, the aims we have. So for example, putting the consumer first, um, that's the sort of a common objective across regulators. But then we need to work uh, specifically in the, in the sector that we regulate. So for example, energy will be very different from water, which will be very different from transport. Um, and also, for example, banking and finance are a completely different sector. So um, we do have to work with different license conditions for that reason, I think, because the, there is things that we have in common, but we also have to kind of separate the powers, if that makes sense. And we have different uh, also kind of enforcement and consumer powers for that reason. Um, yeah, we also need to we collaborate a lot, but we also need to kind of keep our independence a bit between each other. So those different powers then, is that because each of the regulators' powers are based on a particular act of parliament? Yeah, pretty much. So we... um these different license conditions, I guess, um, are based off acts that were that were maybe kind of started at different times or in different sectors. So they're they're sort of bespoke um, to the sector. So as I mentioned, I guess electricity and gas act obviously we work, work differently uh, from, for for example, the competition act, which was done um, later later on. So I guess, as you said, it's just it, yeah, depends on the kind of I guess parliamentary laws that um, that we follow, and those are specific to sectors yeah now the UKRN your your new members of the BSI consumer forum council can I ask why did you join um, so I think we're always interested in joining different um, consumer councils and and I guess different forums because that's very valuable to us so I think uh, with regulators sometimes it's quite difficult to um, to get in touch with the consumer and to know what the real issues are that affects that affect them um, so we try and be part of these consu- uh, consumer forum councils just to, I guess, get different ideas, different views, um, collaborate with different organizations that may have um, different views on things. Um, and we always aim, as UKRN, I guess, because we're also a regulators network, we try and keep us ourselves informed as much as possible um, on best practices in, in other sectors. Um, and also maybe do a bit of strategic thinking from other organizations so, um, to, I guess, provide the best possible service to consumers. Uh, so that's a very that's very valuable for us because I guess we, we aim to just collaborate as much as possible and dip into different forums, do different things and engage with stakeholders. So that's basically the core of our job is just stakeholder engagement. So we talk to lots of people. So the Consumer Forum Council is also a great, um, great forum for us. Did you know? 
a global perspective on services. The majority of services standards published by BSI are European or international in scope. This reflects the global nature of markets and helps to ensure consistency of protection for consumers using cross-border services. CPIN works closely with its European and international counterparts to strengthen the consumer voice. We complete our look at standards and services with Julie Hunter, the voice we heard at the top of the episode. Julie is an independent consultant in consumer research, policy, advocacy and protection, and also CPIN chair, and a friend of the podcast too. I started by asking Julie, from her perspective, for services... What's in the Consumer Protection Toolkit? I mean, there's lots of different tools to protect consumers um, from poor quality service, you know, whether they're at risk of harm from, you know, something that affects their physical safety, like an accident injury or financial loss, stress or inconvenience. So we do have legislation such as the Consumer Rights Act. And we also have regulators um, and ombudsmen that have been created by statute in key markets. So, for example, essential services like financial services, energy, water, telecoms. Um, we have enforcement as well to make sure that organisations stick to the rules that are defined by law. Uh, but standards play a really important role as well because they're defining good practice for those organisations that want to improve quality. So it's kind of it's giving them the detail that they need to meet those legislative and regulatory requirements. And quite often standards do underpin legislation and regulation as well. So I think all of those tools in the consumer protection toolkit, they have a different role to play. Um, but it's not just, you know, you can use one. They can really work together and complement one, you know, one another really well. Now, given that CPIM plays a very, very important role in developing the standards themselves, and, and given that we have global markets now for service provision, what are the implications for sort of national, European and international standards development? I think we're seeing a lot more standards being developed at an international level. And I mean, it's the same for products as well, but particularly in services, lots and lots of services are cross-border now. You know, we can buy online from retailers in other countries. We can um, download or stream services as well that, you know, maybe have a different country of origin. And in normal times, we can travel to other countries and use services there. So it might be hotels or swimming pools or gyms. So it's really important. We've got quite a strong consumer protection framework in the UK. But as UK consumers, we want to know that when we travel to another country or we buy from another country, that we have that consistent, you know, really good level of protection. So standards can help to, you know, make sure that those um, that, that quality is consistent across borders as well. So if you think about the example, you know, if you're buying goods online, you want them to meet certain quality and safety standards. You want to make sure that your hotel, for example, Uh, meets the same standards in terms of fire or the safety of of balconies. You also might go abroad and use services like, you know, have a holiday haircut or a beauty treatment or something. So international standards can really, really help that consistency, um, you know, because they're agreed by experts. And it means that we have the same level of protection wherever we go or wherever we buy from. I never thought about standards protecting my international haircuts when I have a haircut <laughs> on holiday. You mentioned there some obviously some of the standards in those areas. Can you can you give us give us some more examples here? Particular, we love our standards numbers here on on the BSI Education Podcast. Any particular <laughs> standards you want to highlight for us? Yes, I mean we have services is one of CPIN's five priority areas, and where we can, we get involved in standards for specific services sectors. 
So that might be financial services, um, healthcare, travel or tourism. Um, so, for example, in tourism, we've got BS 8848, which is adventurous activities. And that helps to minimise safety risks for organised activities abroad. So it might be a, a charity challenge, you know, where you go to climb Kilimanjaro or something, or gap year travel, school field trips, volunteering projects. And it just makes sure that all of those trips are planned um, efficiently, um, their proper risk assessments are carried out, um, and that staff are capable and competent, that kind of thing. Um, financial services is another area where we have some good standards. We've got a PAS there, for example, 17271, which is protecting consumers from financial harm as a result of fraud or financial abuse. And that's really about what banks and building societies can do to protect consumers from fraud. And we're hearing all the time about the increase of scams and how prevalent they are, you know, everywhere, online, telephone, in person. Um, so this gives good practice to identify and support people who've been targeted by scammers to help them minimise their losses. And then in other areas, we have a whole load of different standards for like leisure, health and beauty, for example, fitness centres, swimming pools, um, beauty salon services, tattooing. Um, so there's a really wide range of services that people you know, use very frequently that are covered by standards in different sectors. So that's some of the sort of vertical with the standards within the sectors. How about, how about the horizontal, sort of the cross-cutting standards? Yeah, that's a really good question because with our limited resources, we can't always get involved in every single service standard for every sector. So I think we can have a greater influence if we tackle those horizontal consumer issues, those kind of things that are relevant across all services, you know, across a wide range of sectors. So things like customer service, we've got BS8477 for customer service. We've got um, BSISO 10,000 series, which covers things like um, complaints handling and customer satisfaction. And that's really, really important because obviously this is something that is applicable for consumers with every single service that they, they purchase or they use. We've also got standards for things like contact centres, which are used across multiple sectors. And one that I mentioned to you before in our vulnerability podcast was um, BS18477 Inclusive Service, which is just being um, reviewed and updated to an international standard on consumer vulnerability. So again, that's another area which is relevant across a wide range of services. And I think these are the ones where we can really have the greatest impact for consumers. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned well two things. I'm glad you mentioned the previous episode. Yes, the the podcast episode in this series on consumer vulnerability that's still on the feed, uh, but also there about the sort of impacts and effects that standards can have. I'm inter- interested here about obviously we're talking about CPIN's role about influencing the now and and the future of standards development and 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 the the use of standards. How about that something that's already happened? You know, can you explain about where a standard might have had some some positive impact in 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 the area of services? I mean, CPIN has a responsibility to make sure that standards maximise positive outcomes for consumers. So we're there to make sure that, you know, consumer issues are are heard. I think one of the standards areas that I would pull out as having a really big impact would be complaints handling, because, as I said before, that is relevant to every service that you might um, purchase or use. And a complaint is a gift, really. Every organisation can make mistakes, but it's how they deal with it that counts, And how they deal with a complaint can make a real difference. 
um, to how consumers feel about that organization. It can impact their loyalty, um, you know, the brand's sort of reputation as well. So if you've got good practice written down in a complaints handling standard, as we do, um, that really helps businesses to keep their customers and win new ones. It helps them to set up effective complaints and redress systems. So, you know, like what the organizations do to put things right in terms of refunds, discounts, that kind of thing. And it also can help reduce the likelihood of harm for consumers. So if you can tackle a complaint early and effectively, it helps to you know, prevent or minimize financial loss, help consumers get their money back, for example. So organizations that are dealing with problems really well at an early stage, they're sort of nipping things in the bud, you know, before things get worse, before the problem gets bigger. So that complaints handling standard can actually help businesses to save money in the long run because no one wants a, a massive customer service fail that's going to hit the headlines or go viral. So it's all about, you know, trying to get your complaints handling right, at, you know, first time round at an early stage. And another standard that I think has had a really um, big impact in the services world is our vulnerability standard, BS18477, because we know that that's been really widely used in the essential services sector. So the financial ombudsman have used it, several regulators, we know that Ofgem um, promote this standard as a way of firms meeting their obligations to vulnerable consumers. So we know that this standard has been used by a lot of firms and I think it would have had a really big impact because vulnerability is something that can affect anyone at any time. And before we wrote the standard, there wasn't really any existing guidance for organisations on how to define vulnerability or how to identify customers who might be vulnerable or how to respond to them to give that tailored, flexible response. So I'm, I'm really sure that that's had a positive um, impact for consumers. So looking to the future uh, then, Julie, in terms of standards development for consumer protection in services, you know, where, where are we going next in this area? Mm, that's a good question. I think we'll still have to think about the traditional delivery of services. So those that are delivered face to face. But we definitely have to think more about digital now because lots more services are managed online. So it's not just making your purchase, but it's your accounts management and billing and everything. We have services that are delivered online, so streaming services and things like apps, you know, music, films. And I think we're going to need to think a lot more about artificial intelligence as well and how that impacts service. So it's automated decisions for things like financial services applications, people maybe being unfairly turned down for a service or provided with a service that doesn't meet their needs. You know, chatbots for asking questions or um, submitting complaints can they really deliver the same level of service as a real person can they understand individual needs and provide responses in the same way that a human can and another thing about going digital is clarity of information because one area that we've seen a lot of potential consumer harm is online terms and conditions and we think this is you know going to be quite a big problem in the future as more and more decisions and, and services are contracted online and you know is it even possible to give informed consent online when we know those online terms and conditions can be really onerously long and complex you know they're just confusing for consumers and it can deter them from reading them in the first place um, the swedish consumers organization 
did some research and they found that when printed out, Airbnb's terms and conditions were 39 meters long. And they had a brilliant video of, you know, that paper being wrapped around a person to show how long the terms were. And I think Consumers International have estimated it would take the average person 76 working days to read all the terms and conditions that they encounter online in one year. And, and that's a couple of years old now, that stats. It probably would take you even longer. So I think with those terms being so long and complex, most people don't read them, let alone understand them. And you often have to click that you accept the terms before you can move on with the purchase. So basically, more and more people are accepting these legally binding terms without having the slightest idea what they're agreeing to. So um, we recently, CPIN recently proposed a new international standard to increase consumer understanding of online terms and conditions. And I think that's really got the potential to make a huge impact on consumer protection in this area because we're hoping it will spell out good practice to improve like the clarity of terms, highlighting those key points at the beginning, you know, so people know up front the key things they're agreeing to. And making sure that people really understand the terms, so whether there's additional charges or you know what their cancellation rights are before they confirm their purchase. So I think that's a really interesting forthcoming standard. And I think we'll need to be looking much more towards digital um, services in the future. My thanks to Adam French, Zoe Gijaro, Agnese Meloni and Julie Hunter for their contributions to this episode. And to you for listening. The final episode in this series is a celebration of CPIN at 70. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to the BSI Education Podcast now, wherever you get your podcasts. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. just heard a stripped media production.